Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're not talking about a Gene Wolfe story, but instead we're talking about the first phase of Wolfe's career that we've covered a large part of on this podcast, which spans from Trip Trap up until the fifth head of Cerberus. Yeah, we're going to revisit some of our favorite pieces from this period of Wolf's career. We're going to talk about some of the themes that we saw across these stories. We're going to look ahead to what's next and probably take the opportunity to say a bunch of stuff that we'd wished we'd said in previous episodes, maybe correct the record a little bit. Yeah, and there's places where we are not going to correct the record and stand by our readings of certain stories as well. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think, Brandon, let's let's just start by talking broadly about this period of Wolf's career, maybe sort of an assessment, so to speak. What was your reaction to these stories and to Operation Ares, reading them kind of in a, a real detailed way together, you know, over about a six-month period of time? Yeah, for me, these are much better stories overall than I remember, or at least I should say the vast majority of them are. I really was introduced to Wolf's short stories when I bought the Best of Gene Wolf collection many years ago, and I was let down by a lot of the stories in that collection. One of them is Beach Hill, which we didn't cover. Another is For Lesson, which I'm sure we will. It's a fan favorite. And the recording which we have covered, and in True to Wolf, it's a lot better, I found, the second time around. Though it's not like a wolfy story. Yeah, that collection, The Best of Gene Wolf, is really interesting because it is stories that are perhaps not objectively his greatest contribution to literature or even to science fiction literature. They're stories that mean a lot to him for a variety of reasons. Like we saw when we were doing the recording, that this was a story that mattered to him because of what was going on in his life when he wrote it, that this was his story about the death of his father. Yeah, exactly. And same with like his comment on For Lesson, which was something to the effect of, I've known a lot of men whose lives have passed them by as they work their careers. And it's as if, if you boil that down to one day, this is what I imagine it would look like. And taken in that light, it's a bit of a tragic story. But for the number of pages and puzzles and all that stuff he puts into it, this is the wolf where the emotion and the puzzles don't connect. And though that friction is something that I struggle with in some of Wolf's work. Right. And I know, although we haven't gotten to it yet, for a lesson is a story that you don't particularly love, that Wolf himself loves quite a bit, and that, as you say, fans also tend to. What was, maybe, Brandon, for you in this phase of stories that we we did cover, what was a, a story that still doesn't work all that well for you? Overall, this has been a real pleasure, but I think Car Sinister is the standout <laughs> worst right. of this bunch of stories we've covered. Operation Aries as well. I think we've said everything that can be said about that book until someone else comes along and says more about it. I'm, I forgot about 30 minutes worth of stuff to say today. Oh, so. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, well, that will be then done today. Um, I'm still standing by our assessment of House of Ancestors. I can't remember a thing about of Relays and Roses. Like of even all the stories, I look at that title and I can't remember anything about that story. So that one just didn't even stand out to me. But I, I find even slight stories like Sonia Crane-Wesselman and Kitty or the Packer House Method or Paul's Treehouse 
have so much to offer that I find it a shame that Wolf is still not widely more read as a master of the short story form. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I was very surprised to see how much was packed into these early stories and what I think we would often call the journeyman phase of of anyone's literary career, and often just very short stories, three pages, four, five, six pages, not novelettes, not novellas, just almost flash fiction, some of these stories that had so many ideas packed into them uh, that they were really just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, and many of them don't feel overstuffed. There's just so much to pull out of them. Part of it is, I think, Glenn, your interest in history. There's a lot of history to pull out of these stories of the time and context in which they were written. But I think still, Wolf is much better than many of his contemporaries in addressing a lot of these sorts of issues. I don't know, Glenn, what what was your reaction to this early phase of Wolf's career? Well, if you recall back to our very first episode, our kind of introduction to what our project is. You know, I had said that one of the things I was most looking forward to was reading Operation Ares. And I have to say that Operation Ares was not nearly as bad as I had been led to believe. It is still probably Wolf's worst novel. It is among the worst things that we read, you know, for for this part of the project, but it was it was definitely not as bad as I think people say that it is. I really enjoyed seeing Wolf develop as a writer. Seen a lot of material that's going to be recycled, that he is going to recycle, reuse later, uh, especially in the solar cycle, but also in, in other places. That was really interesting to me. But I also enjoyed it as this historical artifact, uh, which I think I could say about a lot of these short stories from the late 60s and the early 70s here. One of the things that's kept Operationaries from being read is Wolf's own dismissal of it as a work. He's a writer who is still producing, where there's still work being published. And I absolutely understand the instinct of a fan to respect the wishes of a writer they admire. But you and I are doing more than kind of fan service here. We're trying to understand on a level of literary criticism, on a level of scholarship, and on a level of, yes, fandom, to what Wolf is doing as a writer. And so we don't have to play by those rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think we've kind of done the thing that people very often do, which is gravitate towards criticisms first, because it's the easier thing to do. But let's maybe shift gears into talking about the things that we really loved about this phase of his career. I don't know, Brandon, maybe we could just start by having you tell us what was your favorite piece that came out of this phase of Wolf's career. Yeah, I think it would be no surprise to any listener that my favorite story of this period is The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories. This is not just a great Wolf story. This is a great story without any need for qualification. This is one of the best short stories ever written. It's a it's a shame. It's not been canonized in, say, like the Norton Anthology of American Literature or any kind of other type of compendium because it does so much for literature. It does so much for genre fiction. It is a unique voice. It is a unique technique. And, you know, I don't understand how something like uh, The Night Sea Journey, say, by John Barth gets into uh, <laughs> an anthology and gets taught in colleges. But I love The Night Sea Journey, and I love John Barth. And and something like The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories does not. To me, that's that's an absolute 
oversight on the part of those who create the canon of American fiction. Other stories I really loved were The Changeling, Slaves of Silver, which was just a pure pleasure to read and talk about. How the Whip Came Back, which was just full of incredible ideas and concerns about the direction the world is heading in and handled so beautifully. Also kind of a robot story. And IBEM, which was just wolf on display as a nature writer, as a person who loves the beauty of the world. And I think those to me are the real standouts of this early collection. Yeah, you've hit really most of the highlights there. One thing I'll say before I give you some of my own responses about the island of Dr. Death and other stories. So that certainly topped my list as well. And I think that when we are done with this project uh, in about 35 years and we're having our final episode and we are wrapping up the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, it's still going to be on this list. I don't see how it couldn't. I honestly don't. It is genuinely one of the greatest short stories ever written. Uh, It's just unbelievable. And if there's any question about genre fiction, if our listeners have fans of people who are hesitant to recommend even the genre of short stories, the style of short story writing or genre fiction, give them this story and tell them it'll take 20 minutes and see if it doesn't change their mind. It's one of like three short stories or short story writers I'd recommend to anybody who claims they don't have time to read and they don't have time to engage with genre fiction because there's serious works out there. All of us are very busy people. The majority of us are. I have a day job that takes up an enormous amount of time. Short stories are one of the great ways to get really excellent literature while you're waiting for the train, while you're on the commute, if you listen to books, while you're cooking dinner, you know, (laughs) having a book open. And this is one that I would just say, just read it, recommend it to everybody and read it. There's not a person out there who would read this story and not be able to at least recognize its merit. And if you really need to be proselytizing books to, to people, I mean, what better story is there than one that is about how awesome fiction is, about exactly. how awesome it is to read, how therapeutic it is, how it makes us all richer and better people and, and perhaps just healthier people. Yeah, people who are able to navigate the complexities of our world, people who recognize that we don't just need heroes, we sometimes need villains as well. And it's just one of the best stories. I've probably said it's the best story too many times, but I'll say it again. It's the best story. (laughs) Well, one story that didn't make it onto your list, Brandon, that was number two on mine, which will probably not surprise you or, or anyone else, was Trip Trap. I am a sucker for epistolary storytelling. Also, I'm a sucker for anyone who is so consciously riffing on The Lord of the Rings and doing it very well. That's an important caveat. And of course, Wolf, when he's riffing on anything, is doing it very well, because not only is he one of the best writers who have ever lived, he's one of the best readers who has ever lived. And when he, he is combining those talents, it's absolutely marvelous. Yeah, Trip Trap is the story that is like when you hear people like musicians talk about putting a record together, they say something like, you have your whole life to make your first record and like three years to make your second one. And Trip Trap is clearly the work of a lifetime of love of genre that just comes out so strong right off the bat. And it's not just Lord of the Rings. It's Robert E. Howard as well. It's Conan the Barbarian. It's Sword and Sandals. It is weird alien technology. I mean, there's 
everything in this story, not to mention the technique and style is unique. It's interesting. Yeah. Also, Coffee in Space, which has become kind of a shorthand for us on the podcast, but also just in our daily lives. I keep using the phrase Coffee in Space as if it's an explanatory thing to anyone I say it to. <laughs> and it all comes out of Trip Trap here. Right, right. And it's clear. I mean, this is this is a big part of like Dan Simmons' Hyperion universe as well as this kind of Coffee in Space aesthetic. And it's just so cool to see Wolf. I don't know if he originates it, but generates these ideas in such a way that seems so natural and normal and fresh 40 50 years later it's unbelievable well i'd really love to know what listeners thought was the best part of this phase of wolf's career as well give us a a top three list a top five list i'd love to see it but i think that we can set aside our sort of general assessment of this period brandon and get into the meaty bits of this episode and jump into a thematic discussion here. Yeah, I know, Glenn, you had told me when we were talking about this episode that you had a little bit to say about Wolf's politics early in his writing career. And we decided not to talk about it so we could talk about it on mic. So I just would really love to hear what you have to say, how you approached what it maybe meant for Wolf to be a William F. Buckley conservative, as he said in one of his interviews. And Also, just how our understanding of his politics after the fact changed our readings of some of these early stories. Right. We've said repeatedly that we're surprised at how much politics there is in Wolf's stories. It's not something that I have associated with the Wolf of the Book of the New Sun, for example. And so that's been interesting sort on its own. But it's also been really fascinating to see the political philosophy, the political ideology of an extremely intelligent, extremely well-educated and extremely erudite person 50 years ago, who we also get to see develop as a thinker and as an artist for decades. So I'm really excited to kind of sew this all up to look not just at Operation Aries, but also at some of these other pieces. But I want to be clear that, you know, by politics, that what you and I have meant really the whole time we've used that word here on the podcast has not been issues of elections or sound bites on the news the way that I think we use politics as a shorthand in our own world, but but rather questions about how we ought to govern ourselves. What are the functions of the state? What role should the state play in our lives? And, and these, of course, are philosophical and ideological questions, right? They're not comments about specific policy questions, uh, though I think we, we see some of that in Wolf's stories, especially the military stories. But I want to ignore those, at least for now, I'm sure they'll come up, and focus on the more abstract questions. But I think that our entry into this topic, Brandon, has to be a sort of mea culpa. And uh, <laughs> yeah. No, you're absolutely right. We, we missed one of the most important culturally formative events in history as we were covering some of these early stories, namely the threat of communism in the 19. 19- 60s and 1970s. Right. We had a, a listener comment on our, our coverage of Paul's treehouse to point out that uh, we were completely ignoring the historical context of the Cold War in that story. I think we made up for it by the time we got to Operation Aries. But at that time, we were only thinking about fascism, right? And in part, in, fact, in large part, because this is something that's seemingly important in our own politics here in 2018. But especially because we were recording that episode uh, just a week after the violence, the fascist violence at Charlottesville. 
Right. We were reading backwards into history, which I've also gotten into on the forum with a really friend of the podcast. And and there's a Borges short story called Pierre Menard, author of uh, Quixote, which is about reading backwards into texts. Now, I'm not a person who believes that this is a crime. And in fact, I think it's a it can be a decent place in terms of hermeneutics and interpretation to start. But in Paul's Treehouse, we started there and never went anywhere else. And that that's kind of the mistake we made with that story and the reading of that story as well. And we really just forgot how important communism was as an ideology, uh, as an alternative alternative as an option, a political option for most of the 20th century. And I know that for me, when I was growing up in the last phase of the Cold War in the, the 1980s and the, the early 1990s, that I thought that fears of communism were pretty silly. And they were then because by that point, the Cold War was clearly just about imperialism. It was not about competing ideas of how society ought to be governed. But in the early 20th century, even the late 19th century, and really as far as into the 1960s, that wasn't the case, right? Communism was still regarded as a serious solution to political, social, and economic problems in the U.S., and, and maybe even more so elsewhere in the West, places in, in Europe, for example, right? People really thought that it was possible that the U.S. could become a communist or quasi-communist country. And Many people were hopeful about that, I suppose, but many more people were afraid of that. And this was not a fear that was silly, even though I tend to think of it that way, or at least certainly did as an ad adolescent. This was a, a real fear. This was a something that could profoundly shape a person's uh, life, a person's identity, and certainly a person's politics. And we just missed it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and as I think back on the stories my grandfather told me about his fear of communism as a child, the way he was indoctrinated against it, when my parents tell me about the bomb drills they would do at school, how this is this is a major formative part of maybe our parents or grandparents or maybe even some of our listeners generation that we just missed. We saw David Hasselhoff dancing on the Berlin Wall and the invasion of Iraq in the first Gulf War. And we're told about proxy wars from the time we were children, that the idea that communism could be serious, especially once by the time we hit school, uh, Stalin's crimes against his own people were revealed, the starvation, um, which some people call a genocide, the redistribution of food that cost so many people their lives, that this was not a serious option for us. And we saw it as a form of entertainment. West Berlin bought East Berlin's currency and rebuilt a country. And a man in a jacket full of lights was dancing on a wall and everybody was selling pieces of that wall. And it's, so it's just this whole popular culture event that we just didn't take seriously enough in what Wolf was going through as a man who was trying to make up his mind about these issues. And that's been really great for me to realize that we made that mistake. I'm very grateful for our listener who pointed that out to us so early on in our, our coverage of Paul's Treehouse. But this really opened me up to treating these stories, and especially the novel Operation Ares, as 
artifacts from this decade or this period in our own nation's past that I had a hard time empathizing with, despite the fact that I love listening to the Beatles and the Velvet Underground and other music from that era. Uh, I, I, it was hard for me to really empathize with what were the fears and anxieties and, and hopes of people in that decade that I was reading this as kind of anachronic or ahistorical literature. And having that pointed out to us before we got to Operation Aries, I think really opened up my eyes to appreciating that novel. And so that's been a really awesome thing about our forums as well. Yeah, and not only our forums, but also our conversation with Mark Aramini, for those who missed it, because they fell off during the Operationaries reread. I, I really recommend listening to that conversation, because Mark points out that Wolf realized how political his writing was and wanted to move on to more universal themes and concerns, which he does almost immediately right after Operationaries. He still has a few more war stories in him, but the universality of themes, the not wanting to be pigeonholed, that conscious desire, I think, uh, you know, which Mark kind of indicates he has, really comes through right after this novel gets published. Yeah, that was really great to hear Mark talk about Wolf consciously, self-consciously making a change, changing direction that he was going in with his stories, or at least where he had been in Operation Ares. And I think that's a great transition into the sort of new material that I actually want to introduce here about politics. And that is to look at the role that G.K. Chesterton's writing plays in Wolfe's political philosophy in the 1960s and the early 70s. And Wolfe has said many times in many places that Chesterton deeply influenced him. And I think it will be fun to look at some specific examples here of of how Chesterton, as this thinker from the, the 1920s and 1930s, was influencing Wolfe's perception of the world in the 1960s and the way that he's imagining the future. I think that's a wonderful idea. Well, let's let's talk about Chesterton himself first. G.K. Chesterton was a writer and a prominent part of the English intelligentsia during the early 20th century. He grew up as a Unitarian and went through a serious goth phase, I guess, uh, as a teenager. (laughs) But after he married Frances Blog, uh, she influenced him to join the Anglican Church. And of course, this is very similar to Wolfe's own conversion narrative. But Chesterton has one more step here. He converted to Catholicism in 1922. And of course, this is probably why Wolfe is reading Chesterton at this point. He's approaching him as a Catholic intellectual. Chesterton's conversion is taking place in this zeitgeist of the post-World War I world, where there's a lot of disillusionment, disenchantment with the world, and a lot of anxiety about what the world is going to look like. I think that we see this in Wolf himself, right? When he's uh, writing The Changeling, for example, which is explicitly about his conversion and also his military experience. And when we were covering that story, this is, of course, before we've been corrected about Paul's treehouse. So we didn't really think about it in these terms then. But Wolf's conversion story is in many ways wrapped up in the Cold War itself, right? So it is wrapped up in the political zeitgeist of the age. And so it's real obvious, I guess, why Wolf might identify with or at least respond to the work of Chesterton. 
Right, because the changeling is in some part explicitly about this group of people who don't want to return to America after the Korean War and choose to stay in China. And this is a story about a person who not only struggles with that decision to return or not, but also whether to return to a fundamentally spiritual encounter with the world. And you're absolutely right to say that these things are tied up together in Wolf's own working out of his politics and religion, which we get to witness in his early batch of stories. And I think that reading Wolf in that light, maybe through the lens of Chesterton, is, I think, really instructive, really informative. Now, many of our listeners are probably already familiar with Chesterton as he remains you know, an important part of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Not to mention a pop culture figure. I mean, the BBC just in the past year or two rebooted the Father Brown series. Yeah, and I hope that someday we get to actually cover some of those stories on Patreon. But I have to say that I first encountered Chesterton as a character in Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics. And I was also very briefly a member of a G.K. Chesterton reading group when uh, we lived in Denver. Right. Who hasn't been a member of that reading group? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and in fact, that's really actually how I came to be reading Chesterton this past fall. Over the summer, I had retrieved a dozen or so boxes of books from my mother's house. And among those books was this volume of Chesterton's works that I'd had because of that reading group in Denver, although we only ever went to two or three meetings. And I decided you know, I know Wolf is really interested in Chesterton. I'm doing a Gene Wolf podcast. Maybe I should read some more Chesterton. And so I dug into it and the timing wasn't great. It turns out that I read the most important piece in this book after we had wrapped up Operation Aries already. Uh, And that book is The Well and the Shallows, which was written in 1935. You know, I think if Chesterton had been writing today, his best work would have been as Twitter threads. A lot of these books that he publishes here in the late 20s and early to mid-1930s are collections of newspaper editorials where he's weighing in on the important issues of the day. But some of them still can resonate for us today. And many of these don't have a whole lot of value for us now, that they are taken up with gossip of the day. But they do show us what were the concerns of a Catholic intellectual about the 20th century, about the dawn, really, of high modernity or the flowering of high modernity. You know, and in particular, how to live with industrialization and just some of the broader things that we see in The Well and the Shallows are this tension between jobs and souls, or really maybe even seeing jobs as kind of the enemy of our souls. The industrial power of the state is something that very much concerns Chesterton, as well as the worship of money. And in general, I'd say that I would have done a much better job with Operation Aries if I'd read this book beforehand rather than after the fact. But this episode here will give me a chance to, I don't know, make amends with our, our listeners. Yeah, definitely worth reading. And there's an episode in our coverage of Operation Aries where we discuss this question of leisure in the industrial society. For me, my views of this are formed heavily by another Catholic writer named Josef Pieper, who is a German Thomist writing in the 1960s after World War II, while Germany is beginning its own sort of reconstruction project. And he is entirely concerned 
with the same sorts of problems that you just described Chesterton being concerned with. Yeah, and I think that it's fair to say that Operation Ares is probably Wolf's most Chestertonian, or at least the political Chestertonian work that he has. And I, I just picked out three broad topics that I find in Chesterton that we also find in Wolf's work to run through. And the first of these is the search for a third way, or maybe might be better phrased as a criticism of both capitalism and communism, or maybe even the better way to say that is just to say critique of modernity. The second thing that I want to talk about is something that Chesterton calls sex and property, which I think is a a, a great title, but then also the state as an agent of oppression. But let's just start by kind of looking at the ideological tensions that we have in the Cold War. And something that struck me in Wolf's story, How the Whip Came Back, was his criticism of both communism and capitalism, right? His suggestion, actually, that we need to find a third way. And we see this as well, I think, in the opening of Sonia, Crane, Wesselman, and Kitty. And of course, Operation Ares at its core is concerned with communism, right? And the the rise of the bureaucratic state. Chesterton is also concerned about these things. So I'll just share some of Chesterton's thinking about them and draw some connections to Wolf's work. So something that that Chesterton says in The Well in the Shallows is, it cannot be too often repeated that what destroyed the family in the modern world was capitalism. And he says that capitalism gives an overwhelming influence and power to employers, and that capitalism forces people to prioritize their jobs over their families. And I think that this is something that bothers Wolf as well. I think so, and I think it bothers at least the traditional contingent of American conservatives as well, the, say, family values movement, that this is a movement that is really caught up in the protection of the family as the core of society. The one thing I recognize is that family values is a, is a really important idea still in mobilizing conservative or at least contemporary conservative ideology. Now, there's a danger there, which I'll go so far as to say as when people praise foreign powers for being better at family values than we are. For instance, praising Russia for their treatment of homosexuals or any kind of non-normative person. This is something that I think Wolf would find a problem with, though his politics are in the 1960s and 1970s, explicitly conservative, as I'm going to get into in my section a little bit, Wolf is very concerned with the treatment of conscious beings as always being human. That's not to say that neither Wolf nor myself has problems with (laughs) raw ideology, but I do think that it is right to be concerned with the state's intrusion upon the family. That's a real concern. But when it's just used as a weapon of words and rhetoric, that is another concern in and of itself. Well, for both Wolf and for Chesterton, right, there is this real anxiety about the way that modernity dehumanizes humans. And let me just share another passage here from Chesterton, who says that from the first, the whole capitalist system was directed towards encouraging the worker to spend his wages, to have nothing left on his next payday, to enjoy everything and consume everything and to face everything, right? This is to make a person not a person anymore, but just 
a consumer. This is something that's concerning Chesterton here in the 1930s, but it's something that we see explicitly in Wolf here in Operation Ares. We see it, but I think also this is the real theme of Sonia Crane-Wesselman and Kitty, where Crane-Wesselman is perhaps the most disgusting character we've encountered in Wolf because he is a spiritually bankrupt consumer who has lost all of his empathy as a result of being a consumer. And in Operation Ares, we see that consumerism has devolved to only really take place within black markets that only sell things that devalue the human experience. It's explicit in the novel. I will also say that this is not just a concern of the Catholic population in England. Um, This is an ongoing concern for many, many years in much of the Western world. And Bertrand Russell has has a wonderful essay called In Praise of Idleness, that really mirrors a lot of these concerns. And it, it, today, in our own political rhetoric, which right now is maybe not so much about the economy, and under our last two presidents, the imperative to spend, to uphold the middle class, to strengthen the foundation of the middle class, has been nonstop in the political rhetoric of our time. And this is because... This is how our economy works. The middle class spends and our economy functions. <laughs> and it's crazy. It's crazy when you think about it. Yeah, it really is. And 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 something I think that, that Chesterton has, you know, you said zingers earlier, Brandon, and Chesterton really is full of zingers. And, and he's got a great one that I think really summarizes this whole section of our conversation today, but that also really encapsulates everything that Wolf is doing about politics here in this phase of his career, when Chesterton writes that communism is the only complete and logical working model of capitalism, which is to say that the kind of logical outcome of turning everyone into a producer and then also a consumer is going to be communism, right? That to make an individual be the perfect citizen of a capitalist world is to just create a communist society in which everything is about production and consumption, that everything is about material goods and not about our value as people, anything about our identities, our personalities, or our souls. And to me, this was something that I think we saw most prominently, actually, in How the Whip Came Back, where Wolf is explicitly suggesting that we need to find a third way, that even though he's writing in a world and from a point of view that thinks that communism is a bad for humanity, he is also thinking that capitalism is not particularly good. And capitalism has led the United States to start adopting many of the policies of the Soviet Union in that world and is leading to the reinstitution of slavery. It erodes our ability to live as citizens of our home and to develop a strong sense of place, both of which historically are crucial to human beings' understanding of where they belong in the world. There's a problem in that the problem of alienation that took place with many people after World War II is no longer a problem in our society, that we are now all, in a sense, aliens in our own place. Um, There's a great Aeon essay that was written about this recently. Aeon.co is a wonderful uh, philosophy, sociology, and psychology website. But I would also recommend um, for our readers and listeners who think that Glenn or I are making any strong 
political statements here that this is all just part and parcel of the times. And I want to take this opportunity to recommend um, a, a British conservative writer that I really love named Roger Scruton, who is very much concerned, and rightfully so, about home and place and how these concepts impact our sense of aesthetic, of beauty in the world, of how they should impact our views on the environment. He's a wonderful writer, and I really recommend him because I think he's concerned about a lot of the same things that we see Wolf and Chesterton concerned with. I, too, am concerned that there's no third way, and there really ought to be one. Well, speaking of, of aesthetics and, and home life, maybe let's just jump into this other category that Chesterton has, which is sex and property, which is the na- the title of one of the chapters in uh, The Well and the Shallows. And the, the gist of this chapter is to say that in the ancient world, really meaning Greeks and, and Romans, uh, there were sexy cults but that these were the worship of fertility and that they tied together the love of a woman with the love of your homeland. And for Chesterton, modernists have proclaimed an erotic religion that exalts lust at the expense of love and fertility. And I found this really fascinating when I came across this chapter, because to me, this seemed to be how we should read the contrast between Tia Marie and the erotic dancers at the inn where only delight lives. And I think you said as much actually when we covered that, Brandon, but we do also see this in how the whip came back and in Sonia Crane, Wesselman and Kitty in regards to Wolf's juxtaposition of sex and slavery. Right. And, and I think this is especially clear with Crane Wesselman who has something as this creature that is uh, genetically an animal, but visually a human so that he can own the thing that he's having sex with all the while he gets to ignore the humanity of Sonia. This seems to be a real Catholic criticism of modernity's views of sex and love and relationships. Yeah. It also makes him a lazy human being. He ignores his own humanity. And I think that's the real danger here. I think it's a real concern of Christianity, not just the Catholic tradition, but the tradition of the spiritual humanist or the Christian humanist, that at all costs, we must maintain our our dignity and humanity. And that's not just uh, pride or an ego issue. That is actually recognizing our place in the order of creation as being made in the image of God, as being image bearers of God. And we ought to be careful about the things that both diminish our view of the God image in the other, in other people, other conscious beings, but also the things that erode our own view of ourselves as being image bearers. And I think that this is a big part of Wolf's critique of modernity and Wolf's pushing of his adapted Catholic religion that I have no qualms with and I find to be extraordinarily beautiful in the majority of his work. And I think for me, this was important to read in Chesterton and then to sort of read backwards into these wolf works that we had already covered, because I think it's very easy for us to dismiss the social views and social norms of someone who's writing 50 years in the past and to dismiss that as being old-fashioned and 
representative then of something that we as a society have moved beyond, right? And especially with things like gender roles and race relations in our own world. So for me, it was very valuable, actually, to see that that's not what's happening here at all. Well, that that might be what's happening, but that that's not the only thing that's happening. That Wolf is writing about gender and about sex from a real point of view, right? With a real intellectual purpose. And that in particular, that this is part of his critique of modernity. To me, that was invaluable to see. Yeah, I love to hear you bring this up in retrospect, because I think it sheds a lot of light on a lot of what we've read so far. Right. And I, I want to keep it in mind as we go forward. I mean, there was a conversation on the Gene Wolfe Appreciation Group on Facebook recently about Wolfe's treatment of sex and gender that I think actually probably could have benefited from having read Chesterton. So I think that we can do that work for the community here by keeping it in mind as we proceed. Yeah, I agree. And we are going to hit some real bumps in the road with Wolfe's treatment of women and of men as well. But I think... You know, recently I did um, with your co-host of Lower Decks an episode of Gilmore Girls we covered, which I found watching it as a male who was concerned (laughs) about masculinity, uh, found a lot of things that the episode had to say about masculinity as well as femininity. And I think when you're consuming any type of media unreflectively with an ideological lens, you are always going to run into trouble. And and my practice as a reader is always close reading and open reading and looking at not ideology, but what the purpose of something is. And there are things that writers do that lack purpose. Lacking purpose bothers me. Having purpose, even if it's unfashionable, doesn't bother me all that much. And I found so far in this group of stories that Wolf rarely does anything without purpose. The third category of the state as agent of oppression is something that touches a lot of hot buttons. But I I also think Wolf is not doing this without purpose in his writing either. No, there's real purpose here. And, And of course, this is something that was maybe the central theme of Operation Ares, but we see it in these other political stories, but also some of these military stories as well. And some of the things that jumped out at me from Chesterton on this topic really can serve to show us that Wolf's perspective is not just wrapped up in the Cold War as this sort of conflict between democracy and capitalism, but that is about these fears of really any kind of ism and and really just fears about the power of the state, the way that the state can intrude in a person's lives. And so, you know, one thing that is really striking in Chesterton's Well in the Shallows is a chapter that he has praising St. Thomas More as a hero for standing up to Henry VIII in defense of the church in in the midst of the, the English Reformation. And Chesterton thinks that we need more of this in the 1930s as dictators are on the rise and as people are beginning to worship the state. And I think that this phrase, worship the state, is really so crucial to both Chesterton and to Wolfe, right? To see the state as an agent of oppression because it is trying to replace the church because it is trying to rob people of their spirituality and of their their relationship with God and their ability to attain salvation and eternal life. 
Yeah, this is absolutely explicit in how the whip came back and also operationaries where there is a very limited representation of the church in this world. And in fact, what remains of spirituality is in these cults. We see John Castle, the hero of operationaries, specifically as this kind of Thomas More sort of hero, the one who is always at odds with his local authority, even to the point where his local authority becomes the president of the United States, which is the most powerful bureaucratic force in the nation within operationaries. And that actually adds a lot to my own reading of the story, to to read John Castle as not a tool of the state, but as a person who stands up to the oppression of the state. Later on, Wolf's heroes are both tools and saviors at the same time. And it's going to be so fascinating to begin to pick those heroes apart. Both Severian of Book of the New Sun and Patera Silk are tools and revolutionary leaders. John Castle is just a revolutionary leader. He is kind of a tool, but not really. I think Wolf hasn't nailed that down. But it's clear to me in hearing you say that, that Wolf's sense of how effective a person can be without being anybody's tool is called into question as he develops as a writer. Right. And that's something that I think is very striking about John Castle, that despite his JC initials, which I made an awful lot of or tried to make an awful lot out of (laughs) while we were covering Operation Ares, he doesn't really seem to actually be an agent of God or to be explicitly a tool of some spiritual righteousness or higher power the way that Patira Silk certainly is and that perhaps Severian is in the Book of the New Sun. And I think that Wolf's approach here to religion in Operation Ares is really about how religion has disappeared as the state has become more powerful and more intrusive in people's lives. And this is something that I certainly missed and just did not think about while we were reading Operation Ares and just didn't occur to me at all until reading about this in Chesterton, that Wolf is looking at this Tia Marie cult almost as a sort of speculative fiction analogy to early Christianity, that it is a religion that is growing up as a counterculture, as something that's quasi-illegal, something that they have to be secretive about, that is meeting in people's homes, meeting in abandoned factories or warehouses, and fears the oppression of the state in very much the way that early Christianity did, and that Chesterton fears is going to happen again in modernity. And if I could, I just would like to read this passage that he actually has about this. And for him, where he's seeing this, we should say, is in Nazi Germany, right? This is four years before the invasion of Poland is this this book is published. So most of these writings are five or six years before that happens. But it is clear that Nazi Germany is a terrifying power in the world and potentially for Chesterton here, a harbinger of ills that might conquer the entire world. And on this topic, Chesterton writes, the state has returned with all its ancient terrors out of antiquity with the gods of the city thundering from the sky and marching with the pageant in iron panoply, the ghosts of a hundred tyrants. 
and we have begun to understand in what wide fields and playgrounds of liberty the faith that made us free has so long allowed us to wander and to play. And so for him, the real threat of fascism is that it is going to destroy the church. And that does seem to be what Wolf is very concerned about as well. Yeah, that's explicit in both How the Whip Came Back and Operationaries, Wolf's most political stories. You can almost see the seed of that idea from Chesterton's writing grow into these two different stories where the church has lost all of its power, except in terms of how it can be used by the state for its own gain. And even John Castle uses Tia Marie's call for his own gain throughout Operationaries. And John Castle becomes a certain puppet master of the state by the end of the novel. And I'm still not sure what to make of that. And I hope for our readers who have read Operationaries with us and followed along with our podcast, that that's a question that maybe they can help us answer. And I hope that we find some more clues in Wolf's later work, maybe even in this next phase, to really see where he goes with that idea, which might actually help us understand the idea you know, sort of retrospectively. Yeah, as I said, I'm a huge fan of reading backwards. You're going to see more of that on this podcast. (laughs) Well, as promised uh, earlier in the episode, Brandon, that was probably my my 30 minutes of redoing Operation Ares, things that I wish that I had said. But I think now we should probably jump into our our second theme of the episode, which is going to be robots. Yeah, I don't have quite as much to say about robots, I think, as you did to say about operationaries and and Wolf's politics, because I think we've done a pretty good job of covering Wolf's development of robots. But it is something that endlessly fascinates me about Wolf's development as a writer is his fascination, his interest in sentient objects, uh, from the plants in Morning Glory to the cars that breed in Car Sinister, which, I mean, don't read it, guys. Just listen to the podcast. <laughs> um, though, I, I mean, I do think that the first place we see this sentient object, this thing with consciousness, this other that we must respect in the world is in House of Ancestors, where the DNA of the visitors creates this robot version of the ancestor. It's not something that works for me. And as I said before, I really stand by my reading. This main character's mother was still alive. So the need to have his younger mother be his guide here really still confuses me as a reader. But Wolf is doing something with conscious beings already who are not human in his second published story. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm going to stand by my dislike of House of Ancestors as well, even though we did take quite a bit of flack for that on the forums. But there is, I think, this really great bit in House of Ancestors with this robot version of Gregor Mendel as a robot priest, where Wolf is raising this question of, can a robot priest or a priest who is a robot still have a relationship with God? What is the requirement that a thinking thing, a sentient being, has to be fully a person or fully a spiritual being or to have a relationship with God? That is raised here in House of Ancestors as actually a joke. It's a funny bit in the story. And it almost seems like something that Wolf thought of 
as a joke and then later went, actually, that's a pretty good question. Let me have a whole writing career about it. Yeah, he never gets over it. And it's wonderful. It's one of the reasons why I love Wolf. I have about uh, 14 questions in a similar vein that (laughs) I will be raising at the end of our run through of Wolf's representation of robots that can be rhetorical. We can chat about them a little bit, but I really want to raise them to our readers as a challenge, as I think Wolf is using robots to challenge the way we deal with what in philosophy or literary studies or criticism might be called problems of representation. The next up, we get to Horrors of War. I'm skipping Relays of Roses because I don't remember anything about that story, as I said, <laughs> though there is a computer in it. Yeah, you actually did like that story more than I did, though, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember nothing. But by the time we get to Horrors of War, Wolf is playing with the idea of what it means for a culture to treat any sort of consciousness as inhuman. And he gives us beings that are made, that are created to wage war. And these beings identify more fully with their robotic counterparts, Pinocchio and and Mr. Punch, than with their human overseers. And Wolf is doing something. He's making a move in this story to challenge the notion of maybe being a soldier or people who are programmed to fight. And he returns to this idea in Operation Ares. But we are confronted with a class of people who have a fuller relationship with their equipment, their equipment is more meaningful to them than their human relationships. You know, one of the things that's raised in Horrors of War that I think is so absolutely fascinating about robots or about, really, we should even just say machines that humans create to do work for us, to perform tasks for us, is a question of can the machines that we make perform their tasks in a way that doesn't make us morally culpable for their behavior or for the jobs that they are performing. And I think that here in the horrors of war and elsewhere, Wolf is actually saying no, that we can't just make a smart machine and tell it to go kill people and excuse ourselves or absolve ourselves from that moral culpability. And that, in fact, there are many creatures, many beings that are being wronged through that attitude. Yeah, that is an incredible point. And I think that cuts right to the heart of Wolf's approach to the question that is raised in Frankenstein, which is what does the creator owe its creation? Wolf thinks it owes them salvation in the same way that Christianity's approach to humanity and their creator thinks it owes them a shot at salvation. IBEM is up next, and that that one deals with robot forest rangers, and I think we covered this one pretty well about the abandonment of man's call to subdue the earth, to be the earth's warden, in a sense. But these forest rangers we see have gone through many changes over the generations that they've been in service to the point where IBEM himself is indistinguishable from other people and in fact recognizes a class of robot hierarchy within that story as well. But IBEM still in the story lacks an ability to empathize with the human. It's not sharing its reality with other humans because the human is better at surviving than he is. And he sees the human as inherently weaker because the human is being phased out of this job. There was so much that I loved about IBM. Just superficially, robot forest rangers 
if that was a more developed genre than it actually is, that would supplant space Jesuits for me. So if there are any aspiring science fiction writers listening, please start writing a series of robot forest rangers. I will be your number one fan. Yeah, but avoid all the terrible puzzles that Westworld tries to tries to pose us. Yes, that's true. In fact, I forgot Westworld even existed about 10 seconds after I finished watching it. But I, one of the things I love most about IBEM is that there's a way, and this is something that I, I hope we'll explore as we progress here in the project, of seeing this story in the solar cycle universe. That this is the sort of first foray into making robots that are so human that they are actually running their own schools, that they are are teaching their own young, teaching their own children, but that they still don't have that all right. That this seems to really be kind of an origin story for the sentient creatures that we see later in the solar cycle, especially the Book of the Long Sun. Yeah, Ibem is a real first step for Wolf into what becomes his characteristic robots, his move forward for robots in science fiction. But before he even gets there, and I think Slaves of Silver is the first place where these type of robots show up, we are dealing with humans who have been programmed or have been repurposed in some way. This is operationaries which explicitly deals with humans, the Russians who have been programmed to be soldiers. They've been lobotomized and chemicalized to the point where their humanity is lost and they are robots in a way that Wolf doesn't even write robots. They are they lack agency and consciousness and they don't need to be respected as people, though the reader recognizes the horror of this. And, and the same goes for the Packer House method, which deals with... Uh, death and reprogramming as a means of control and and really the violence inherent in these ideas. Yeah, that's a great point that Wolf thinks that sentient machines are more human, more like people, more ensouled than fleshly bodies, homo sapiens who have been manipulated by science who are being controlled uh, in some way, whether it's through a process of reanimation or a process of lobotomization, that that really terrifies Wolf in ways that thinking machines, sentient hunks of metal, do not terrify him at all. That this is something that I think really separates Wolf from earlier science fiction writers dealing with robots, is that Wolf is ready to welcome robots into the fold, to welcome them into the panoply of God's creation. But that what really horrifies him is to not make a machine a person, but to make a person a machine. And we talked about this quite a lot through kind of a roundabout way in our coverage of Alien Stones. And in fact, the story of Alien Stones is a, a, a sort of converse to the story of the Borg in Star Trek TNG. And we really made the connection between this wolf story and the creation of TNG as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I still think that Wolf should be getting some, uh, some royalty money for that. Maybe he is. Who knows? <laughs> right? It's true. <laughs> well, the, the next place we see robots in our coverage of this podcast is Slaves of Silver. And as I said, this is the first place where Wolf's 
robots really recognizably show up. These are real artificial intelligences. They have been fully integrated into at least one level of society, and they are people under the law, though they still face some discrimination. There are still some who think of them as less than. Right. Slaves of Silver is really the place where Wolf's robots appear at their fullest. And of course, it's going to progress from there. But the whole conceit of Slaves of Silver is that robots are so much like people, that they are people to the extent that they have the impulse to tell stories, which for Wolf is really kind of the highest thing that people do is to tell stories. And if you are telling stories, whether your body is flesh or metal, then you are a person. You are a fully fledged person, right? That storytelling is the one thing that sentient beings do that separates them from other types of creatures. Yeah, it's really a question of consciousness. And so here's where I had just have this barrage of stream of consciousness questions on my own part, some of which we've raised in earlier episodes, and I recommend listening to these episodes if you're interested in this robot question that we've brought up. But Wolf is really interested in consciousness, and is he using consciousness as a benchmark to explore what it means to be human? If so, I'm a huge fan of it. And then the questions he raises, he continues to raise are, what do we owe to conscious beings? And is there any such conscious being that is less than a human being? Does possessing consciousness necessarily mean that something is good? Are we, as people, really any less programmed than Wolf's robots? And I mean, this just these questions are raised endlessly in his early fiction, but he gets really deep into these questions in his later fiction. And I think for, for a lot of science fiction readers, many readers and writers are still playing with Asimov's laws of roboticism. But Wolf, for me, takes this notion to the next level that challenges me as a reader, as a human being, about my own prejudices, my own interactions with others, and the way that I am willing to, in my own mind, in my own encounters with others, use representation as a shorthand that cheapens the life of other people. Well, we just did a whole segment of this episode in which we admitted that we had really kind of missed the real zeitgeist of the age, at least early on when we were doing Paul's Treehouse. I think it's really important to point out, and I don't think that we did this during any of our story-specific episodes, but I think it's really important to point out that Wolf is asking this question of what is the definition of a person, where he's asking us to consider that a machine, that something that is made of metal, something that doesn't look like us, is in fact as much of a person as we are. He's asking this question during the civil rights movement. And I don't think that we pointed that out before because it's not explicit in any of his stories, right? That he isn't actually grappling with this question in the stories where he's grappling with political questions. These are different types of stories that he's writing, but this is all happening at the same time in the same the same desk where he is hammering out these stories. And I do think that Wolf is thinking very much about the civil rights movement. We're posing the question about whether or not machines can be people 
is in some ways posing the question of can different types of humans treat each other as equally people? No, that's absolutely what is happening. Wolf is engaging with the civil rights movement by his trademark technique of making strange. He is creating a new class of other beings and saying, this is what we owe all people with consciousness. This is what they are due. He's making a statement about about justice and about inclusion. And he's not interested in the rhetoric that surrounds any of the arguments for or against this. He stops at the point of consciousness and says, that's enough. That is enough for me to welcome anyone as a human being. And we even see that, as I think Mark Aramini pointed out to me during our conversation about Operation Ares, where I kind of went on a little bit of like people in power don't deserve power (laughs) (laughs) thing. And he's like, he said something to the effect that made me realize that I was even cheapening the life of people who have power, who inhabit power, and don't believe that they are worth redemption because they have made some sort of deal, some sort of bargain that cheapens their humanity in order to get the power. And that struck me really, really deeply and made me realize that Wolf is looking at every human being at the same level. And part of what he's doing with robots is saying there is no deal, there is no mode of creation that cheapens a conscious being enough to the point where they don't deserve the basic dignity that all humans deserve. And everyone can achieve salvation. Yeah, exactly. It's something I've just found really enriching and edifying and rewarding in Wolf's work. And there is so much more of this to to come in Wolf's later work. He's going to broaden the field of this inquiry. He's going to throw at us actually some even maybe stranger creatures and ask if they can be saved and ask if they are people or not. And I'm very much looking forward to encountering those stories. And I I think that this is maybe a good place to talk about where we are going next. What is the next phase of Wolf's career? And this next phase, I think, is really exciting. I think that for most people, this is actually probably the earliest phase of Wolf's work that they've encountered. Certainly for the casual fan, that's going to be true. We have uh, three novels or three long works that we're going to be looking at. The first of them is The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which is this amazing novella collection. It's this collection of of three related novellas that's marketed as a novel, but is really a collection of related stories. This is really probably where Wolf fully becomes the wolf that people know. I am so excited to talk about this book, but I'm especially excited that Mark Aramini is going to join us for another wrap-up episode here. Yeah, and as we said before, he is a really great wolf scholar. He's a phenomenal interlocutor. For those of you who know him from Earthnet or Reddit or Facebook, you already know a little bit about him, but I think hearing him speak about wolf is going to really impact your perception of him as a person and as a wolf scholar. I've really been enriched by our conversations with Aramini. And we haven't started doing Fifth Head of Cerberus yet, but Mark has already shared with me a little bit about what he wants to say about the title 
novella in that collection. And I'm really excited that we're going to get to be the forum in which uh, he shares that with people. Uh, the second novel in this phase is Peace, which is one of my absolute favorite of Wolf's works. This is his explicitly non-genre novel, though it still has, I think, actually some pretty heavy genre uh, elements in it. This is going to be our return to Cassonsville, the town where the changeling took place. And Brandon, I think that our journey together through Wolf's works kind of got into lockstep when we read the changeling. I think that for us, that was an important story for, for us, for our relationship as Wolf readers, as Wolf podcasters. And I'm really excited to get back to that. And you say get back to it because uh, I think you're excited to return to Cassinsville, but you're also excited to reread Peace. For me, this is going to be my first reading of the story, and it is a sad oversight that I have as a fan of Gene Wolfe, and I couldn't be looking forward to it more because I get to read it and talk about it with people who love Gene Wolfe. And, and I, I found that that's just something I really love about doing this podcast. Well, me too. And I think that leads right into the the third and, and final novel that we're going to do in this phase, which is The Devil in a Forest. This is Wolf's perhaps young adult novel might be the, the way to describe it, though that didn't really exist as a publishing category here in the 70s. This is one of the few Wolf novels that I actually haven't read. And I, I don't think you've read it either. No, we're going to both be surprised by this one. And I can't wait. This is the fun of the podcast, right? Is that we get to experience some things for the first time. We get to treat some things as if we're experiencing them for the first time. Uh, we're doing a book club. We're doing scholarship. We are inviting people to share in their love of Gene Wolfe with us. And this is probably the first thing that we're going to do that neither of us have read before. Except for Operation Ares, I guess, which has kind of a special caveat, I think, for all Wolf fans. But this is always something that I have a real tension of. What am I most looking forward to in covering the podcast? Is it the few things I've not read before? Or am I looking forward to rereading my most cherished, most favorite Wolf works and then getting to discuss them with you? Before we get to what we're most looking forward to, we should run through very quickly what some of the highlights of the short stories in this next phase of Wolf's career are going to be. There's a lot of them. We are going to read 20 short stories between The Fifth Head of Cerberus and The Book of the New Sun. That's half of the stories that Wolf wrote, because of course, with the stories, we're only covering those that our uh, Patreon supporters will select for us. That said, I think that we can anticipate maybe some of the highlights, some things that I think we almost certainly believe will be voted in by our Patreon supporters, though there were several surprises in this last vote that we had. I couldn't believe that we did not cover Beach Hill, actually. I could. I was real glad we did it. Um, <laughs> but we, we, you know, somebody could always commission that episode and I'd be happy to talk about it. I wouldn't be happy to talk about it, but we will cover it if it's commissioned. Well, I would be delighted for you to have to talk about it, of course, because that's the type of person that I am. Uh, but some of the stories that I, I think that we will almost certainly get to, that our patrons will almost certainly choose for us to cover in this next phase, are going to be the continuation of the Wolf Archipelago series that begins with the Island of Dr. Death and other stories. There are two of them here in this phase. They're the Death of Dr. Island and and The Doctor of Death Island. These are great stories. It would be a real upset if those don't win in the vote. 
Yeah, one of them, and because the same words are in all the titles, uh, I can't recall exactly which one, but one of them has stuck with me for many years and, and kind of continues this sort of notion of boyhood and culpability and the innocence of childhood in a very serious way. I just think everybody's going to be enriched and delighted by the Wolf Archipelago. Yeah, and we also have coming up in this phase his novella Seven American Nights, which actually is in the the collection The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. And this is a story that's really stuck with me over the years. I can vividly recall when and where I was reading it, what my mood was, what I was grappling with in my life. And this is also a story that Mark Aramini really loves and also thinks is a really important moment in the development of Wolf's intellectual project. Yeah, and part of the reason is that from what I've heard from Mark Armini is that it demonstrates Wolf's move towards a metatextual element to his writing that knowing the texts he's referencing becomes more and more important to what he's writing about. And that's not to say that the stories can't be enjoyed without that, but that the meaning is found in the understanding that Wolf is a great reader as well as a great writer, which is something we've brought up a few times in our podcast and also tonight. I think now might be the right time, Brandon, to just talk about what we're most looking forward to in this next phase of Wolf's career. And I'm going to kick this question to you first. What are you most excited about reading in this this next phase? Well, for me, I cannot wait to talk about Fifth Head and the accompanying novellas. Uh, I'm talking about The Fifth Head of Cerberus, uh, a novel by... John V. Marsh and VRT. We're going to have a little bit more to say about that in in a few minutes. This to me is the story I read after New Sun where Wolf just takes off that I said, I am not solely a New Sun fan. I am a Wolf fan. And I I just can't wait to get into this trilogy of novellas. And as we said, there's some great short stories in the next batch. And I, I, but, but, Really, I just want to get to peace because this is the wolf masterpiece I haven't read that I can't wait to experience both with you, Glenn, as we dig deep into it, but also with our cherished listeners and audience. Yeah, on that note of both anticipation and nostalgia, I am also very much looking forward to peace. Something that you are very excited about with the Fifth Head collection is how Proustian it is. You are a huge fan of Proust and In Search of Lost Time or the Remembrance of Things Past, depending on how we might want to translate that. We'll just call it Proust. <laughs> we'll just call it Proust. And the Fifth Head of Cerberus, of course, is extraordinarily Proustian, but so is Peace. And I, I actually think that in many ways, Peace is the most Proustian of Wolf's works. So I'm excited to get back to that because I think it is a beautiful piece of literature. I have nostalgia for when I was reading that, which is actually when you and I were first meeting and becoming friends in Denver. I read this almost exclusively between 5.45 and 6.45 in the morning after mid-shifts, night shifts in Denver. But I'm also really excited to see how you respond to it, knowing that this will be your first read of it. Yeah, and those were the times when we were meeting, when I was reading Battle Royale and uh, G.K. Chesterton, myself, The Man Who Was Tuesday, and a bunch of different things. I, w- I would go to the bookstore from, I don't know, 8, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. And, and 
was try to figure out a way to stay up all night. You had a bit more taste than I did <laughs> at those times, um, and you were the one who introduced me to Wolf. But yeah, I, I just I th- I can't be more excited to get to peace and then move forward to the other Wolf masterpieces that he's famous for, namely the Solar Cycle. Well, I think with that very far future tease that's gonna do it for this episode i'm glenn mcdorman and i'm brandon buddha you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com head on over to the clay temple forums and let us know what you thought of this phase of wolf's career our first 30 or so episodes uh, what your highlights were tell us what you're most looking forward to in this next phase Next time on the main podcast, the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, we'll start our coverage of the fifth head of Cerberus. We're going to cover the first two sections of that story. In the 1994 edition published by Orb, that's pages 11 through 22. Yeah, and of course, the novella the fifth head of cerberus can be found in lots of places in the the room that we are recording in right now brandon it is in six different books just in this room it is his most anthologized piece if you own a story collection called really good science fiction stories or the best sf stories ever or great speculative fiction tales you have a copy of this but of course we're going to do the whole collection so we're reading it out of this 1994 Orb edition, but because this is such a popular and widely available story, we're really hoping to use this moment to proselytize for Wolf, and we hope that you will too. Now is the time to get a copy of this story for those co-workers and friends you've already told to read Wolf a hundred times, eh, maybe a thousand times, and let them know about our little book club here. Yeah, and don't forget to tell them that we cover a wide variety of things on our Patreon podcast, which is accessed for only a dollar a month. We are trying to hit a few goals to increase our production quality, to get our weird fiction podcast off the ground as well. This is the moment where we hope to get a lot of people involved with our podcast to begin to go backwards and to look forwards with us as we continue to read the great science fiction writer, the master of the short story form, one of the best postmodern writers of the English language, Gene Wolfe. Yeah, we really just can't wait to get started on this absolute masterpiece, not just of science fiction, but of all English language literature. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.